Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I must admit, I saw snow today. And what I like about snow, it has the word no in it. I just don't want snow yet. I want it maybe in December, like Christmas Eve. And then after that, I'm, I'm back to warm weather. That's my preference. We're going to have a great hour. Paul Martini's coming on. He talks about access and releasing God's peace. So you're going to enjoy that. And then Ken Ham on creation and apologetics. It's going to be... I must say so myself, one great hour. So let's get it started. Let me take 60 seconds and bring on Paul. There's power when coming together, when hearts and minds are joined behind a common cause, a common passion, a common hope. There's a spirit that takes flight and moves you to action in ways you just couldn't move by yourself. That's why every baseball team still playing wants the home field advantage the crowd will give them. Why worshiping together moves you in ways solitude can't. And why listening to Faith Radio and gleaning from the insights and experiences of a community truly connects faith to life. Faith Radio. Humor and grief may seem like emotions that are at opposite ends of the spectrum, but when they converge, something beautiful can happen. Faith Radio and University of Northwestern St. Paul are offering a free online course, Navigating Grief with Humor, which is designed for both grievers and those who desire to help. In this free course, find out how humor can help a grieving heart cope, build resilience, and find purpose during moments of sorrow. Learn more and register online today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to be having Paul Martini as my guest. He's on our studio line. He's written a book called Access and Release God's Peace. From Chaos and Confusion to Freedom and Power. Paul, welcome. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, I love the fact that I see the word peace all over your book because uh, I can't think of a word that we want more than peace. Yeah, I think it's one of the most undervalued fruits of the Spirit, and I believe that the Lord's really emphasizing uh, His peace to the church today because we really need it. Yeah. Now, you were uh, you were in business management, weren't you, before you got into uh, being a pastor? Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked for Verizon Communications. I was a business development manager for them. Uh huh. So, uh, tell me how you transitioned from that from that job and how God called you into ministry. Well, um, I guess you know that kind of incorporates you know really how the Lord found me. Um, I was a I would say a nominal Christian. Uh, my wife at the time and I were going to would go to church and we had a history. Uh, in the church, but uh, we uh, we ended up uh, doing work, doing the daily grind. I was working at Verizon Communications, uh, and actually a lot of my story uh, it pivots on that because I always say the devil, uh, whenever he sees a crack, he tries to make the biggest chasm he can out of that crack, and that's why I know why God hates divorce because no one really wins. Um, the husband doesn't win, the wife doesn't win, the kids don't win. And, uh, so and true. so, uh, you know, that's why he hates it. And so, um, but, uh, I'm not trying to tell the story to make my ex look bad, but, uh, but just the fact that, uh, everyone has a past and a story and 
I was not an innocent party by any means. We were just lost. We didn't know what we didn't know. And so uh, my story actually starts where uh, uh, my wife ends up leaving me, and I was really crushed by that. We had two little children. We had twins. I ended up um, getting really lost in the world because I was in so much pain. And um, it's in my book, but basically I, I find myself in on Thanksgiving in a bar because everything's closed except bars and pubs are open on holidays. And I was believing in a lie that nothing would ever change in my life. I would never have peace. I was outside smoking my cigarette, leaning against the dark windows of the bar when this older African-American man comes up to me and he says, Paul, are you going to make it? No, he doesn't say my name. He just says, are you going to make it? And I said, what? And he said, you heard me. Are you going to make it? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, how do you know? And I don't know why I said this, Bill, but it was like I was time warped back to Children's Church where the only correct answer is Jesus, the Bible, or prayer, you know, no matter what the teacher <laughs> asked. And I said, I said, because Jesus? And he said, Jesus? Why'd you say Jesus? And I said, because I'm a Christian. And of course, he just ignored me. And he said, what's your name? I said, my name's Paul. And he said, wow. He said, you know, Paul in the Bible did great things for God. He said, one day, Paul, you're going to do great things for God. And he walks away. And I run into a car and I cry my eyes out because I realized just as the psalmist David wrote, even if I made my bed in hell, God was with me and he was after me. And it was that moment in my life that really changed the trajectory of my life where I started to dedicate my life to Jesus Christ and, um, and, uh, and, and start my journey on finding God's peace. And, and during that time, I was working at Verizon, using all my vacation to go overseas on missions. And then God said, Paul, I want you to go to ministry school. I want you to go to Bible school. So um, I forsook everything and, uh, and went to Bible school. So, so that's my story. <laughs> well, Paul, it's a great story. And I, I love the fact that this, this gentleman on, was it Thanksgiving night? Yes. Yeah. Thanksgiving night. Says to you, are you going to make it? It's such an yeah. op- it's such an open ended question, uh, so full of uh, many different directions you could have gone, mm-hmm. um, and then he disappeared after some discussion that that you would do great things. Uh, you know, one of those little moments of maybe divine uh, inspiration and, and divine um, what's the word I'm looking for? Angel. I there think. you go. <laughs> That's probably the good word. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think so. I'm not sure, you know. I, I uh, but I would say, if I had to guess, that I would say that it was definitely divine appointment, and it was definitely, uh, it was a great possibility that I could have been an angel. Uh, Bill, I actually uh, go to bars on holidays uh, uh, and 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 try to minister there because you know people who are there are often because they don't have a family of their own, and um, and but I would go back to that same bar for years. I never could find that same guy. Yeah. So I believe yeah. he was an angel. And Paul, divine appointment was the word I was looking for. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, mm-hmm. you're talking about discovering, you know, this life-changing message that peace is a person, peace is a position, peace is protection, peace is powerful, and much more. Mm-hmm. So let's dig into some of that, if, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, well, I think we need to understand that God's peace from the get-go is not the same peace as the world. And so peace in the world is the idea that it's the absence of conflict, that there's no conflict, that everything's at rest and still. And, uh, and that's really the world's definition of peace. Um, but it's not really God's definition of peace. And it's not how peace is demonstrated in the Bible. 
Um, and I, I always go back to, you know, what was the meaning of this word when it was first uh, originated? And, uh, and I think that's, uh, it's actually on page 76 of my book, but I believe that that's actually the significant starting point. Um, you know, words evolve over time, Bill. Um, you know, I always joke, I say, you know, I found out recently that the word awful used to mean inspire unto all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so but now when we say something is awful, we say it's terrible. It actually means the opposite of what it used to mean, right. because words evolve in modern society. And the word peace, even the word shalom, has evolved to mean something even much greater, uh, and has a fullness to it and a uh, a wholeness to it that is uh, that is such a full word. But if you actually go back to the etymology, the origin of the ancient Hebrew for the word peace, it means something very different. Now, of course, Hebrew language is made of uh, pictures, uh, not just the phonetic of letters like the English language. And so in and of themselves, they have meaning beyond them being together. And so the the ancient Hebrew for the word shalom is made of four different pictures. The first is a picture of uh, looks like teeth, and it means to destroy. The second uh, letter or picture is uh, a shepherd's hook, and it means authority. The third letter or picture is a is a nail, and it means to attach, literally. And uh, and the fourth letter is actually a bunch of waves. It looks like a bunch of waves, and it means chaos. And when you said shalom or peace in the ancient Hebrew, you were literally saying to destroy the authority that's attached to chaos. Oh, I like that. Peace is much stronger than we realize. When we're praying for peace for somebody, we're not really just asking for God to help them accept their situation or for them to be still or for them to be quiet. What we're really asking is that God would destroy the authority that's attached to chaos in their life. Wow. And so peace is a powerful, powerful weapon. And so I talk about how, you know, uh, that's why, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about the armor of God and he, he puts peace on the feet. It's not a coincidence. It's because it, it doesn't matter how well you wave your sword or hold your shield. If you don't have his peace, you're not going anywhere because peace actually advances the kingdom of God. That's why it's on our feet. And so uh, in the book, I actually uh, bring into emphasis how we uh, use peace. And and, that, and Jesus even talked about this. He would say uh, how to take cities. He would say go two by two. Find the house of peace. May your peace rest on that house. Um and so in the book, I, I, I basically talk about how peace is uh, more than just a absence of conflict. It's actually a thing that overcomes conflict. Trans- it's the kingdom of heaven transcending and overcoming chaos. And so that's, that's the emphasis. Yeah, I love that it's something proactive. It isn't just something that retreats. It's something that fills in, which is peace that God gives. Absolutely. You talk about the absence of conflict. It's like it's nice when something goes away, and will that produce peace? But you're really saying that peace is something that gets filled into your life. Absolutely. Hit the nail right on the head. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The world will talk about, you know, emptying of yourself, you know, meditation, which is, you know, I mean, we we might have the, you know, I I say everything that has a uh, original has a perversion or a, a you know a, a falseness to it you know so there'll be you know uh, meditation but we talk about prayer but you know meditation is emptying of yourself and and finding peace through that but of course once something comes into conflict or confrontation or tension well then that that inner peace is gone mm-hmm. um, but when you're filled with him with his peace then it's something that's not 
from you. It's something that's from him. And that's totally different. That overcomes things. Uh, that changes atmospheres. That, uh, that is what transcends uh, issues that are going on around you. And so I talk about this in, in, in John 14, 27. Jesus oh, says I to his disciples, yeah. he says, I mean, it's right there. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. So not, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And what I love about this verse is it really clearly states that peace is a transference of anointing from Christ to our lives. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we need to create. You know, if we're talking about creating from within, well, that's, that's conditional, that's fragile, that's weak. But this is actually an anointing from the Lord. And um, and that's why I believe that peace is transferable. I believe you can go into a place of hopelessness, a place of chaos, let's say a hospital room, and you could lay your hands on the person next to you, and the peace of God will transfer by the Spirit of God from your life to their life. Why? Because His peace is really powerful, and that's what we need to understand. It's not something that's fragile. And, and so I I believe that the enemy uh, he doesn't try to you know take everyone's special gifting. He doesn't try to you know, take anyone's special anointing. Uh, he is not trying to burn down every church in America. He's just making sure the people inside don't have peace because God's peace is really powerful. Boy, is it ever, Paul. Um, Paul Martini is my guest. He's written a book called Access and Release God's Peace from Chaos and Confusion to Freedom and Power. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we're going to have lots more with Paul. show. I'm delighted to have Paul Martini on my studio line. He's written a book called Access and Release God's Peace from Chaos and Confusion to Freedom and Power. Paul, I know that that a lot of people have listened to lies. So maybe would you share some of the common lies that people might be believing about peace? Yeah, I would say, um, uh, again, one of it is that uh, that it's fragile and that it's easily broken. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that's definitely a lie. Another thing is that that you can't have peace in the midst of chaos. You know, I believe that peace um, can either sustain you through a storm or overcome the storm when it challenges the destiny of your life. And that's a perfect example in John 35 through verse 40, where Jesus is in the storm with the disciples in the same boat, in the same storm, with fishermen who could be expert boatsmen, if, you, if you'd want to say that. And uh, so this is a real significant storm. Uh, Jesus, who's at peace, is asleep on a pillow. And uh, and the disciples get full of fear because fear is really contagious. Once you get once it gets in you, it spreads like wildfire. And so they tell him, Jesus, Jesus, uh, you know, if this is a time to be afraid. This is a fearful moment. And what he does is he gets up and he releases peace. So instead of accepting the fear that's in front of him, he releases the peace that's inside him, and it overcomes the storm. And um, and I believe that. You know, Jesus in that in that story told them from the get-go, he said, we're going to the other side. So he already prophetically declared it. And so uh, when, tri- when trials come, when confrontation comes, and it challenges the destiny of your life, I believe that God's peace is so powerful that it, if it doesn't sustain you, it'll overcome the storm. Mm-hmm. I so. bet I bet Paul there are listeners that are thinking, huh, I love this God's, I love this idea of God's peace, but I don't know if I can experience this this freedom in my life on this earth, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that that's, you know, that's a common uh, 
deception and misconception from the enemy. Um, I believe that God uh, wants you to have his peace, and I believe that God wants you to experience the peace that he provides. Um, you know, it says uh, in John 14, uh, excuse me, in uh, Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of heaven is not of uh, eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. In Romans 16, 20, it's my favorite Bible verse. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your own feet. So God's peace is powerful, and it's possible to have it, but I believe it's something that we need to focus on receiving from him. So oftentimes when we come to God and we ask for peace, we come with it in the perception, I like to say, that we're ordering it like a drive-through takeout mm-hmm. re- uh, restaurant where we, you know, we petition God when we need it, at the moment we need it, saying, God, I'd like peace now. Um, I, I, I tell a story where you know, I grew up in an Italian-American household in Philly, and uh, my parents loved cooking. Actually, they were known to, to in the neighborhood as people who would give all these amazing foods. How do and, I get invited? Caters. I'm just curious. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't need to be. You, you got to uh, be born into. Oh, um, you had to spoil it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. No, it's all right. So I, I just, uh, you know, we would love to have you though, Bill. Thank if you. you. Ever want to come. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I remember. Uh, going to school, and, uh, and I was in middle school, and, and my friends said, you know, Paul, does your family own a restaurant, <laughs> like a hoagie place or a meatball place? I said, no, why? They said, you know, embarrassingly enough, they said, because you smell like your parents own a restaurant. I said, like, what? And I found something out. I went home, and all my clothes, everything permeated with everything my parents, all the garlic, all the oil, and I realized that uh, I needed to wear, I say to this day, that's why Italians wear a lot of cologne, you know, <laughs> it's really to cover up all the, all the food smell. But the reality is, is that oftentimes we come to God like a drive through restaurant petitioning for peace when we need it, when the reality is we need to be in the kitchen. We need to be in the restaurant. We need to have the immersion of Christ on us because once it's in us and through us, then we can take it out into the world. And so it, it is, it has an aspect of abiding in him and believing. You know, I say that um, uh, we, we say as believers, you know, we're called believers, not feelers, right? Mm, yeah. It's not by our feelings that we access these things, Bill. It's by our faith. And so when we think of peace, we have to believe that it's through our faith that we receive it from Christ. And, it, and here's our faith in action. When a trial comes, when a conflict comes, when a confrontation comes, we have the choice to turn our affections to Him and allow His peace to flow through us or to give in to the fear that's in front of us. Those are two different choices. And I promise you, once you start allowing God's peace to flow through you, looking at at different aspects and saying, you know what, I could lose it right now. I could give in to this temptation to be angry, to be hurt, to be offended. But instead, I'm going to allow His peace to reside on me Mm -hmm. and remain on me. All of a sudden, all these other options open up to you, and you become a key person in that atmosphere. Uh, That's why God uh, commissions us as peacemakers. You know, peacekeepers are full of anxiety. I don't know if you've ever had to peacekeep something before, Bill. Oh, yeah. But usually a peacekeeper is not at peace. No. They are running around trying to figure out how do I appease every party and make them happy, whereas a peacemaker is something totally different. A peacemaker actually find solutions that bring order out of the chaos. And when you have his peace upon you, 
in your marketplace, in your work, in your school, in your friends' uh, circles and family circles, you actually become the person who is in a way of right thinking because they see that you're not bothered by the anxiety that's in front of you. You're not bothered by the fear that's in front of you. You have his kingdom residing on you. So it's a whole new aspect Mm -hmm. and understanding of really what peace is. Yeah. Now, Paul, we can, as followers of Christ, we can... We can be living full-time in God's peace, right? Versus just experiencing a peaceful moment now and then in times of stress? Absolutely. Yeah. I believe I believe 100% that that you know even, you know, now, you know, I talked about, you know, the origin of peace is the uh, to destroy the authority attached to chaos, but as the word has evolved and uh, and have how we've understood the word shalom, it's total peace inside and outside and total wholeness. So, and that's kind of like uh, a, a liaison to the word saved, which is sozo, which means healed, set free, and delivered. It's total salvation. And so when we have his peace, it's not a momentous thing. It's an everyday life thing. You know, these are fruits of a relationship with Christ mm-hmm. that needs to be. And I always say that, you know, I was meditating on Galatians 5.22, and I, you know, and I said, you know, God, would you give me insight? How do I... And and he said, you know, Paul, you're a fruit basket. And I said, okay, God, please clarify this, because you know, mm-hmm. in my culture, that means you're crazy. Right. But uh, when people in in your culture are sick, they put fruit in a basket and they give it away. He said, the fruit in your life, if it's not picked, it falls off and rots. It's to be given away, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not just for you. And I I believe the more you release, the more you receive. Uh, I believe that we're made to be rivers, not ponds. And Jesus says the rivers of living water will flow out of your belly. And so oftentimes we don't realize the power of his peace and um, and that it's actually something we can give to others. But I, I also use the example, you know, if, if we took an, an orange and squeezed it into a glass and apple juice came out, uh, we would find that that's odd. We would think that's wrong. Uh, orange should not produce apple juice. Um, yet when the pressures of the world come and the attacks of the enemy come upon us, uh, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt come out of us. And the reality is whatever inside of us should come out of us. So really when more, peace, more pressure comes upon us or the attacks of the enemy come against us, the more peace should come out of us or joy or love or patience. And so I believe when we understand that an attack is an attack and our response is not a force, that we actually have a free will to choose how to respond, we can choose peace. Paul, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do the show. And Paul's book is called Access and Release God's Peace from Chaos and Confusion to Freedom and Power. Peace is powerful, and peace is protection, and peace is a person, and peace is a position. There's lots to learn in this little book. Paul, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you, Bill. It was an honor to be here, and uh, I just love chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. And I love the image of you as a fruit basket that probably smells like garlic. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Paul, have a great day. You too, Bill. Thanks so much. Paul Martini's been my guest. Again, his book is Access and Release God's Peace. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to uh, be inviting to the program Ken Ham. He is the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the highly acclaimed Creation Museum. 
and the now world-renowned Ark Encounter. Ken is uh, in more is is b- bigger demand than hardly anyone I know. So I'm awfully glad he can be joining me today. Ken, how are you? Hey, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I've got so many questions, I don't even know where to begin. How about start with one that is been hotly debated around uh, this uh, station, and that is: Can a person uh, believe in an old Earth and an old universe, and uh, you know, still be considered a wise Christian? Well, you know, let's look at what the Scripture says. Uh, it says, "If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God has raised Him from the dead, um, you will be saved." It doesn't say. If you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead and believe in a young earth and reject evolution, you'll be saved. It doesn't say that. In other words, salvation is conditioned upon faith in Christ, you know, Christ alone, grace alone, of course. and so on. And here's what I say to people. Can you, can you be a Christian and believe in millions of years? There are many Christians who believe in millions of years. There are many Christians who believe in evolution. And then people say to me, well, it doesn't matter then. And I say, oh, yes, it matters. It matters for a, for a number of reasons, but one of the big issues is this. You don't get millions of years from the Bible. You don't get evolution from the Bible. Really, when you look at it, this is very different than you know talking about different views of eschatology or different views of baptism uh, when it comes to you know sprinkling or immersion or different views of Sabbath day or whatever, because then what we're doing is looking at Scripture and and uh, interpreting scripture with scripture and i know you know obviously someone's wrong and god will sort us all out one day but you're sort of arguing from what scripture is teaching but the reason people have different views of genesis is because they're starting outside of the bible from man's beliefs about the past and really evolution of millions of years a man's pagan religion of the day uh, of this age trying to explain life without God and we're taking those ideas to God's word and deliberately reinterpreting what it clearly says so the first issue is it's a issue of authority who's the authority God or man and does man have authority over God's word to change what God's word clearly says and you know one of the problems is a lot of our younger generations have been brought up in churches with Sunday school teachers, Christian leaders that have said to them, you can believe in millions of years uh, as long as you trust in Jesus, but they realize the Bible doesn't say that. And you, or you can believe in evolution and say God used it, but they realize the Bible doesn't say that. So it unlocks that door to say you don't have to take God's word as written. It creates that doubt that leads to unbelief. And then the second thing is, if you believe in millions of years, <clears throat> you've got a problem as a Christian, because the idea of millions of years came out of atheistic and deistic naturalism of the 1800s by people who wanted to try to explain the whole fossil record without God. And they said this fossil record was laid down over millions of years before man. And many Christians have taken that and added it into the Bible. But when you look at the fossil record, it's a record of death, of bloodshed, of suffering, of diseases. There are diseases like cancer in the fossil record. After God made man, in the Bible, he said everything he made was very good. If you believe in millions of years, God calls cancer very good. And not only that, when you look at the world today and see all that death and suffering, one of the big problems our younger generation has is this. If you believe in a loving God, how can you, because of all the death and suffering in the world, and see, if you've told them to believe in millions of years, then God's responsible for the death and suffering. But the Bible makes it clear 
our sin is responsible. Death is an enemy. It's an intrusion. It's going to be thrown in the lake of fire one day, and there's going to be a restoration one day to uh, a, a world without death and suffering like it used to be. And so you can't have all this death, suffering, bloodshed, disease before sin, blaming God for that when the Bible makes it clear the whole creation groans because of our sin, not God being responsible for that. So it's a very important issue when you think it through. A fascinating answer, Ken. When I think of some of the climate worship that's going on today, is that a product of us having lost our foundations in Genesis? Well, yes, it is, uh, in, in a number of different ways, actually. Uh, first of all, you, you know, really the, the whole climate change issue is very similar to the origins issue in this regard. Here we are in the present, and the presuppositions that you have determine how you interpret what happened in the past. And uh, so people today, for instance, if they say, oh, look, um, little changes, uh, little changes take a long time to, to correct or something like that or to change back. Like if you believe that, you know, the ice cores that they take when they take these ice cores and all these different layers and they say it shows climate changing over millions of years, whereas ice cores, actually, those layers can be laid down very quickly. You only have to be in one blizzard to see that. Mm-hmm. But if uh, if you believe it takes millions of years, then you think, oh, if there's a little change, either cooling or warming, it's it's going to take a long time to change back. And and this and, and that means if you have the wrong foundation, you're going to have the wrong interpretation. See, if you believe that the universe is only thousands of years old as I do, and Noah's flood was 4,300 years ago, Noah's flood caused dramatic climate change, generating an ice age after the flood, and then the world has been settling down ever since. So when people say, do I believe in climate change? I say, yes, there's been climate change ever since the flood. And those climates fluctuate. But here's the thing. You know what Genesis 9 says? After the flood, God made a promise. Seed time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night are not going to cease while this earth exists. In other words, all this stuff about within nine months, as you heard recently, some of these protests are going on associated with the United Nations. Uh, and, you know, so within nine months or up to 12 years, as some politicians are saying, and the earth's going to be destroyed and we've got to be fearful, we're going to destroy ourselves. Uh, that's absurd. God's in total control. And day and night, seed time and harvest, uh, winter and summer aren't going to cease. Uh, and so you don't have to fear all those things, uh, which they do, and all these alarmist ideas. And the other thing is, go back in history. How many times have people said, like when I studied at university, uh, I used these books by Ehrlich and Ehrlich, the Population Resources and Environment, when I was studying environmental issues, and they were saying that there was going to be overpopulation, we're going to run out of food, and within a few years there was going to be this problem and that problem. And, you know, just like Al Gore in his movie, you know, using people's predictions to say, you know, sea levels are going to rise and all this. None of that, none of that has happened. Everything's been fairly stable. You know, we, we do have uh, weather patterns that continually change for various reasons, but overall it's very stable. And it really comes down... Uh, to your presuppositions. But if I can say one other thing, in saying what I said, that, you know, the climate is is fairly stable within ranges and God's going to keep it that way, that doesn't mean, I believe, we should abuse the environment. There is 
a Christian environmental worldview, and that is we look after the creation, we're given dominion for it, we have the dominion mandate in Genesis, but we use it for man's good and God's glory. We don't do what we read in Romans 1, and that is let the creation have dominion over us and worship the creature more than the creator, uh, which is the sort of thing I see happening today, uh, where you know people are more concerned about uh, saving an animal uh, from certain environmental things, but yet they will say that you can abort babies as much as you want. You can kill human beings as much as you want. There's a lot of inconsistency and hypocrisy in all of that from uh, those who don't stand on God's word. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot to think about, Ken. You know, when you hear people talk about, you know, a, a rock that was found and carbon dating said it was 4.2 billion years old, what do you think, how do you respond to things like that? Well, first of all, Bill, uh, just to um, uh, help people understand, I know people all the time say, oh, carbon dating dates things to millions or billions of years mm-hmm. old, just as you quoted. But actual fact, carbon dating itself has nothing to do with millions of billions of years. That's not me as a creationist saying it. The millions, billions of years come from dating methods like uh, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, uh, some of those, but not carbon dating. Carbon carbon dating, the half-life of radioactive carbon is only 5,730 years. And so what they would say is after about 100,000 years, radioactive carbon is not detectable. So uh, anyone who knows who knows their stuff will say, it doesn't matter whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist or an atheist, Christian or whatever, carbon dating can only date things back to, say, 100,000 years at the most. But, uh, and so, therefore, the way in which you can use carbon dating, if something is supposed to be millions or billions of years old, you should not get a carbon date for it. But actually, things that are supposedly millions and billions of years old, you do get carbon dates for, which means... There's something wrong with this whole dating, uh, you know, uh, procedure and understanding here. Now, carbon dating has assumptions, but every dating method has assumptions. And so when you think about it, if you're trying to date a rock, okay, you've got to have something that changes with time. Uh, So that's why they use these radiometric dating methods. For instance, if you take lead, uh, radioactive uh, in uranium. Radioactive uranium changes into a particular type of lead, and they have, it has what's called a half-life. Uh, how long it takes for half of that radioactive material to decay? Well, when you dig up a rock, you have to assume that all the lead came from that uranium. You have to assume that nothing was leached out over time. You have to assume that the rates of change have always remained the same. There are many other assumptions as well, and all those assumptions can be shown to be not valid. And in fact, another radioactive dating method is potassium argon, potassium changing into argon. There's been a number of instances where, say, in New Zealand, a lava flow was formed. They know when it formed, hardened into rock, so it should be zero years old. They dated it, it dates to millions of years old. And the reason is because they found that argon comes up from the mantle, so there's already a lot of argon there when it's zero years old, which means that uh, it's going to date old when it's only zero years old. 
so, and here's the thing that we find. When they know when a rock formed, they can work out why the dating method doesn't work. When they didn't see the rock form, they just assume it works. But there's a whole range of dates that they, that they get. And what most people don't understand is 90%, 90% of all the age dating methods you can use to age date things on the earth contradict the millions and billions of years. It's only a small percentage of them that even get the millions and billions of years. But all those dating methods are based on fallible assumptions. There's only one infallible dating method, and that is the Word of God. It tells us that God made everything in six literal days. On day six, he made the first man, Adam. Adam had a son, Seth, at 130 years old. Then Seth had a son, Kenan, and so on. It tells you what age they're all born. You can work it all the way down to Abraham, Abraham to Christ. Christ to the present adds up to about 6,000 years. And there is nothing in observational science that contradicts that. Wow, Ken, that, you know, I'm smart enough to ask the question, but maybe not smart enough to completely understand your answer. So I'm going to have to sit and listen to it a second time because it was brilliant, just so you know. Ken Ham is my guest. I'm going to take a very short break, and when I come back, we'll continue more. Ken is the president and co-founder of Answers in Genesis. We'll be right back. this issue? Well, let me put it this way. I, you know, I'm a teacher, and so I like to communicate in ways that make it easy, I hope, for people to understand. Think about building a house, okay? When you build a house, you don't start with the roof and then build the walls and then build the foundation. That doesn't work. You start with the foundation. It has to be the right foundation. You've got to start with the foundation, and then you build the walls, and then you build the roof. Here's how we need to understand it, and this is what I challenge people with. Genesis 1 to 11 is like the foundation. Why do I say that? The first 11 chapters in the Bible give you the geological, biological, astronomical, anthropological history that is foundational to every single doctrine and foundational to the rest of the Bible, which is all a foundation to our whole worldview. In other words, Genesis 1 to 11 is really like the foundation. Now, the walls and the roof are the rest of the Bible, which deals with, you know, our doctrines and the gospel and, and so on, the structure of Christianity that comes out of God's word. For instance, think about this. If we're going to tell people about the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, uh, where do you find out about the origin of sin to understand where sin came from? Well, Genesis 1 to 11, you know, Genesis 3 in particular. Uh, okay, so why is Jesus called the last Adam? Takes the place of the first Adam. Uh, that's in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, when Jesus in Matthew 19 was asked about marriage, and this is recorded in Mark 10 as well, what did he say? Haven't you read he which made the beginning made them male and female? By the way, that deals with the gender issue, and that's Genesis 1:27. And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they'll be one flesh. 
That's Genesis 2.24, which is a result of God making Adam from dust and woman from his side. So you become one in marriage because you're one flesh, which is also the foundation for marriage, which is one man and one woman. So I could go through all our biblical doctrines like that, Ultimately, directly or indirectly, every single biblical doctrine of theology is founded in the first 11 chapters. So if we do not believe and teach the first 11 chapters as history, and not just history, but as the foundational history for the whole of the rest of the Bible, then we're going to raise up generations who have no foundation. And so marriage will be however they want to define it and you know it's interesting you see and a lot of the younger generations even in our church that they will say that what's wrong with gay marriage or whatever isn't it all about love no it's all about when god ordained marriage in genesis uh when he made man male and female genesis 127 and made man from dust and woman from his side which we read about in genesis 2 and then said this is the reason for marriage genesis 2:24. so marriage is a man and a woman if you don't have that foundational history you're not going to get the doctrine right but that's true of every doctrine it's true of the gospel uh, even why you wear clothes, you know, humans wear clothes, animals don't. Why? God gave clothes because of sin. Genesis 3:21 was actually the first blood sacrifice as a covering for our sin, a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you see that it's very, very important that we um, understand how foundational uh, Genesis 1 to 11 is, and yet. Genesis 1 to 11 is rejected by or glossed over by or ignored or compromised by the majority of leaders in our churches, which is, which is why I believe it's one of the major reasons we're seeing an incredible loss from the church when you look at the fact that only 18% of millennials go to church, but the greatest generation, those born before 1928, 56% of them went to church. We've seen a generational loss from the church, and I believe it's the church's fault for not standing uncompromisingly and boldly on God's word, and because they've compromised so much of God's word that the younger generations have walked away from the church. Well stated. So when I think of uh, how secularists are undermining the religious freedom of Christians today, um, and and young people in particular, they they feel a lot of pressure um, if they weren't ch- if they had some church growing up uh, to go ahead with societal norms, which which do go against biblical truth. So how do we kind of reclaim these biblical truths and keep young kids, young, the younger generation engaged if there's only 18, well, 18% going to church? Well, what I say is we need to do two things. We need to be teaching apologetics and we need to be teaching them to think foundationally. Think about it. In in a lot of our churches and Sunday schools, what we do is teach what we call Bible stories. You know, Jonah and the Great Fish, Feeding of the 5,000, Paul's Missionary Journey, Jesus on the Cross, Noah and the Ark. Now I believe those. But you see, we even still use the word story, but the word story has changed meaning. The word story to people today basically means fairy tale. 90 to 95% of these kids go to public schools where they throw in God and the Bible and prayer out by and large and creation out. And they teach you can explain everything by natural processes. And <clears throat> they've taught all this supposed evidence for evolution, which means really the public schools and media are teaching apologetics. Kids, here's the evidence for evolution, the evidence that, that you came from ape men, the evidence for the Big Bang, the evidence for millions of years, the evidence there never was a global flood, and so on. And what do we do in a lot of our churches and Sunday schools? 
schools and homes. Uh, well, let's have a Bible story. What we should be doing is teaching kids, raising them up to understand the Bible's a book of history. It's not just a book of spiritual things and moral things. And the history in Genesis 1 to 11 connects to the Grand Canyon. It connects to fossils. It connects to death and suffering. It connects to the, the people groups. It connects to every aspect of reality. It connects to dinosaurs. We need to be teaching them answers to the skeptical questions of today. You see, <clears throat> today... When you travel around the world, you get asked the same basic questions when you tell them you believe the Bible. Wait a minute. We live in a scientific age. Science has, has disproved the Bible, and the Bible's a book of mythology, and Noah couldn't get the animals on the ark, and dinosaurs lived millions of years ago, and we came from ape men, and evolution's fact, and the Big Bang brought the universe into existence. Sad thing is, most parents don't know how to answer that. Most pastors and Christian leaders haven't taught generations the answers to those to get ready for them so so that when they hear them they'll be able to say oh we know why that's wrong and we can we can tell you how that Noah could fit the animals on the ark and needed the kinds not the species there was plenty of room and so on see if we had have really raised up generations with those answers in other words that's teaching them apologetics they would have understood how to answer the skeptical questions. But instead, a lot of those statements and what they've learned at school and through the media has caused them to doubt Genesis. Many Christian leaders have said, yeah, you don't need to believe it as written. And so it really then undermines the authority of the word. And if this part of the Bible in the beginning is not true, how can you trust the rest? That doubt leads to unbelief and they walk away from the church. And that's where we're at today. Mm -hmm. We have generations who no longer have the foundation that you can trust God's word from the very beginning. And so they've walked away from the church. And if we want to go and present the gospel to them, you can't just tell them, trust in Jesus. He died for your sin. They don't even know what sin is. And and if you say the Bible says, they don't even believe the Bible is a book of history. You have to start at a different place to help them understand that the Bible's history does explain the world. We can answer those skeptical questions. We can show you that evolution is not true and so on, because until many of them will get those answers and understand that, they're not even going to listen to what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Ken, I'm just curious, uh, I, I just appreciate your answer so much, and I'm also just curious about how the Ark Encounter has uh, broadened your understanding and, and how exciting that has been for so many people who have come through to learn more about that. Well, you know, we built uh, two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world here in northern Kentucky. Uh, the Creation Museum was open first in 2007, and the, the Ark Encounter, which is a life-size Noah's Ark built from timber, the biggest timber frame structure in the world, was open in 2016. And here's the comment we hear over and over and over again from young people, from children, from mums and dads. It makes the Bible come alive. And we answer those skeptical questions because, for instance, at the Ark Encounter, there's 132 bays of exhibits in all three decks inside. You can come into the Ark. You come to the Ark and you see the size. And, and, and even little kids say, wow, I didn't know it was so big because they're so used to, you know, their children's books with these little bathtub arcs with giraffes sticking out the chimney <laughs> about to sink at any moment. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You know, we, we think that they're cute, but they're actually dangerous because they're actually telling the kids Noah's Ark wasn't that big it couldn't have fit the animals on board and the and the atheists will mock at christians by saying no it couldn't fit the animals on board the ark 
And so you build it life-size according to the mentions in the Bible. Then you bring people in and you have all these exhibits that answer questions about how many animals did he really need on board and the difference between kinds and species and how could he look after them, how could he fed them, and then all about the fossils from the flood and and then the, the Tower of Babel after the flood forming different people groups, not different races, all the information that we have there. I, I tell you, people are challenged who are not Christians to believe God's word. And we've we've heard of many testimony of those who become Christians as a result of coming through these attractions. Christians are, are strengthened. They're set on fire for the Lord. And the effect on kids is absolutely dramatic when they say, wow, this makes sense, but the Bible's come alive. It's true. I, I can really believe this and trust it. What a difference it makes for them. Well, Ken, you've made my day. Thanks so much for doing the show. It's been a delight. Hey. Thank you. Anytime. Yep. That wraps up our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you uh, for supporting Faith Radio. I hope you have a great weekend as you lay your head on the pillow tonight. Just know that God's working on his great plan in your life. It's now time to ring the bell. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.